John and Chelsea, invited guests, brothers and sisters in Christ, despite the claims of our president this week and many others like him in our day, marriage is not a social convention. Man did not conceive of marriage any more than he conceived of himself. Our wise creator made it. And since God made marriage, he is the one who orders it, rules it, and interprets it to us. We don't define it. Marriage is not like our living rooms where we're free to arrange and rearrange the furniture and make whatever we want out of it. We don't sit above marriage like we sit above gardening or cooking or graphic design. God has given us a good deal of authority over many things in his world, but marriage is not one of them. Marriage God has placed over us as an ordering principle. To marriage, we are the furniture. It arranges us. Marriage tells us what we're to be, where we're to position ourselves, how we're to relate to one another, and so on, which is to say that marriage is law. A law that God first established at creation prior to the fall. A law he has further revealed and explained throughout his scriptures. Now, you might think that this is a very unromantic view of marriage, calling it a law. I assure you, it's not. Romance and excitement and adventure and joy begin when we conform our lives to God's perfect law. Remember what God said of his creation after he formed man from the dust of the ground and made woman from the rib of the man, and he had said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. After all that, God looked upon what he had made, and behold, it was very good. The world does not know fun. It does not know happiness. It doesn't know excitement or the thrill of adventure because it does not know God. God's ways are not a drag. They're not oppressive. They're not old-fashioned. They're very good. They're good because God is good. He is our Father, and He loves, He delights to give good gifts to His children. One of those good gifts is His law. And part of that good law is His law of marriage. Today, people get married all the time. But few marriages, Christian or non, conform themselves to the law of marriage that we see in Scripture. Most marriages today are, in fact, little more than social constructions, human inventions. We treat God's institution of marriage like it's our own personal living room. When we grow tired of some aspect of it, we change it. When we think the whole thing's drab and out of date, we gut it, we strip it, we rearrange it, repaint, remodel. We make a few trips to Ikea and get some flashy new pieces to put in. We modernize it. We make it our own. But it is not our own, is it? It's God's. It's part of his unchanging law. And each one of us, married and unmarried, will have to give it an account on the great day of judgment for how we have conformed ourselves to that law. Now, why did I say unmarried as well as married? Do I mean that it's sinful to remain single? Not at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 argues that singleness is in some sense better than marriage. And he says this because a single man is free to give undistracted devotion to the Lord. And yet, Paul acknowledges that not everyone has this gift of singleness when he says in verse 2 of that chapter, because of immoralities, 
Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And in verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn. John and Chelsea are here today because of immoralities. Let me say that again. John and Chelsea are here today because of immoralities. Not because they've committed any, but so that they won't. Sexual union was designed by God to exist within the marriage covenant only. This is part of the good law of marriage. And John and Chelsea have kept this law from the beginning of their relationship until today. Chelsea is one of the rare brides who isn't lying to us all by wearing white. Part of the reason John and Chelsea have been able to stay pure is by having what some would consider a short engagement. I want you to know, though, John and Chelsea, that John Calvin would not be pleased. The Geneva Marriage Ordinance stipulated that engagements last no longer than six weeks, punishable by imprisonment. It is very better to marry than to burn. The Genevans took sin seriously. Nevertheless, John and Chelsea have obeyed God by keeping themselves pure for this day. And all God's people said, Amen. I commend you both for your hard-won obedience in this area. And I'm thankful to God for this wonderful testimony of the pure love between Christ and his bride, the church. God bless you. But what about the law of marriage after you've made your vows? What will it require of you then? What of marriage's internal codes and regulations? The first and the most basic thing about God's law of marriage is that it isn't unisex. It doesn't know a man here and a man here. It doesn't know a woman here and a woman here. It also doesn't know a woman on this side and a man on this side. It knows only a man here and a woman here. When it speaks to you, John, it speaks to a man, not to a woman. And when it speaks to you, Chelsea, it's to a woman and not a man. You are not the same, hadn't you noticed? Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. You're not the same, and nor were you created for the same purpose. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him, Genesis 2.18. And though by God's grace men and women are one in Jesus, fellow heirs according to promise, in this world at least, God has been pleased to make us very much unequal. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, 1 Timothy 2, 12-13. And also, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.23. And so, because God made men and women different, God's law of marriage does not require the same things of us. Men and women have different and sex-specific obligations to fulfill in marriage. So what are your individual obligations? Chelsea, because the Apostle Paul begins here, we'll begin with you. Ephesians 5, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Chelsea, God did not make you to be the head of your home. Now, if you're godly, and I know you to be, this will come as a great relief to you. The world, because it does not fear God, thinks that authority is synonymous with power. And who doesn't want power? I mean, the more you can get of that, the better, right? The higher up the ladder you can climb on power, the happier you're going to be. Isn't that what we think? Aren't we jealous of those, resentful of those in authority over us? They have it so good up there. But this is a lie from Satan. Authority is not power. Authority is what, John? Responsibility. Authority is responsibility. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be accountable, to be answerable. Nobody wants to be the one that has to pay the piper. Was it when Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit that God came knocking? No. It was when Adam ate. And when God came knocking, what did he say? Did he say, Adam and Eve, where are you? No, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Authority is not power. It's accountability. In one of the most despicable acts in human history, Adam failed to take responsibility for the sins of his house. When he answered to God, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam was a bad head. But Christ, the second Adam, was a good head. And in the best act of human history, Christ took full responsibility for the sins of his bride, the church, by paying the full penalty for her sin by his death on the cross. Today, Chelsea, Christ is giving you an earthly head to take responsibility for you. Isn't that a relief? Does this mean that you can sit on the sofa and eat bonbons and watch Netflix? (laughs) If you do, John will not have been taking responsibility for you. What it means is that you should be subject to your husband in everything. Be a submissive wife. Don't try and lead John. Let him lead you. Don't manipulate him to get what you want. Don't nag at him. Don't punish him for his failures. Don't make your priorities the agenda of your home. Let John set the priorities in the agenda. And help him with it. That's what God made you to be, John's helper. So help. Encourage John. Trust him. Respect him. Do everything you can to make his burden of responsibility a joy and not a sorrow. Lighten the load. Now, there's no way to be a godly and submissive woman without making yourself vulnerable to being hurt by him. There's a reason women steal themselves against men. There's a reason parents want their daughters to get a college degree, pursue a career, and be able to provide for themselves. There's a reason men are untrustworthy. Men are sinners. John is a sinner. It's a terrifying prospect for a woman to make herself vulnerable to what men are capable of. But Chelsea, look at John. This man you're about to marry is a sinner, 
but he's a sinner saved by grace. He has the Holy Spirit at work within him. So don't be scared. Trust God. Obey God. And make yourself subservient and vulnerable to John. Be like godly Sarah who called Abraham Lord without giving into any fear. Now, John, what does the law of marriage demand of you? You've already heard part of it. You're the head of your wife, and that's not a position of power. It's a burden of responsibility. What does this burden consist of? What are you accountable to God for? Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she will be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for he, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. John, you are to love Chelsea and cherish her like you cherish your own self. Love here is not a feeling or a sentiment, though. Biblical, manly love comes with tangible, quantifiable action. The principal way a man loves his wife is by providing for her, and you must provide first of all for the spiritual condition of your home. Just as Christ laid down his life to secure the spiritual well-being of his bride, the church, so also must you, John, do your utmost to sacrificially provide for Chelsea's soul. Just as Christ washes and purifies his bride by giving and applying his word to her, you also must work to see Chelsea progress in holiness by that same word. Just as Jesus triumphed over Satan through the blood of his cross, you are called to put yourself between your home and the spiritual forces of darkness that seek to destroy it. Therefore, read the Bible in your home. That's a no-brainer. Make God's word the centerpiece, the crown jewel, the cornerstone, the be-all and end-all, the first and the last. This is your primary responsibility to Chelsea before God. Sing hymns. Sing songs. Sing psalms. Love the church and be faithful in attendance. Establish your home on the solid rock of Christ. Second, you're responsible for the physical provision provision of your home. If a Christian man does not provide for the members of his household, the Bible says that he is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. So be a hard worker, John. Be industrious. Be diligent. And, and then come home and be satisfied with the living that your work affords you. Don't make Chelsea go out and work just so you can have more stuff, more than you need. And don't be a waster, either, who makes Chelsea and her children come begging at the door of the church. We'll take care of her if she does, but it will not bode well for you. If Paul says a man is worse than an unbeliever who doesn't provide for the members of his household, that means that the faithfulness of your provision is an indication of the state of your soul. So fear God, work hard, provide adequately for your family, but be careful not to make money and work an idol. 
an awful lot of greed and neglect has been justified in the name of providing for one's family. Don't fall into that ditch either. Finally, a couple of words for the two of you together. Make love often. This too is part of God's good law. Don't we have a good creator? His commands aren't burdensome, as you'll soon discover. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, he says, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Marriage is the only legitimate and godly outlet for sexual desire. The marriage bed is undefiled. And so God has given you both a wonderful gift in each other and also a wonderful preventative against sexual union. My word to you is use it. Don't deprive one another of God's good gift and protection. Fulfill your duty to each other. Make love often. And when you make love, let it be fruitful. Children are a gift of the Lord And the fruit of the womb is a reward, Psalm 127.3. One of God's purposes in establishing marriage is to get for himself a godly offspring to build his church, to bring glory to his son. Don't frustrate God's purpose here. Trust God with Chelsea's womb. And let him bless you with children or not as he sees fit. God is good. His blessings are good. His timing is good. His will is good. John and Chelsea, as best as I can summarize it, this is the law of marriage. It's a good law given by our good and heavenly Father. You're going to vow in just a moment to be faithful to this law. And I want you to know that it's not going to be but just a very few minutes until both of you have broken your vows. Maybe even in some egregious way. And what are you going to do then? Well, here also you are constrained by law, the law of love. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You have the mutual obligation before God to extend to one another the grace of Christ. You will sin against each other, and often in many, many, many small ways, and sometimes big ways too. But just as God's grace abounds to you in the gospel, so let it abound between you as you live together under the cross of Christ. Does this mean that you can sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Rather, grace and forgiveness should be what motivates you to greater faithfulness and obedience day by day. Extend to one another the grace that God has extended to you in Christ. Take care not to let that grace become an opportunity for your flesh, but rather the motivation for future obedience. In this way, fulfill your vows to one another, and your marriage will be sweet and rich and happy and blessed. And all the rest of us will enjoy basking in the warmth of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.